0: Is everybody in the Gospel of John? John chapter 16 is where we're gonna find ourselves this morning. Stumbled across a new book this last week. Americans have been pursuing what Carl Sederstrom, he's a Swedish business professor, and in his newest book he calls what we've been pursuing the happiness fantasy. The happiness fantasy. Now, this doesn't apply perfectly to everyone. It's a broad-brushed kind of sociological work, but Sederstrom's basic premise is that we who inhabit Western culture, we have been trained to believe that joy is found. The way that we will finally be happy is only when we are expressing our most actuated or our most authentic self internally. And so we will only find joy and experience happiness when we are, only, when we are finally expressing ourselves without restraint emotionally when we are expressing ourselves as we want to be in relationship with anybody in front of us, when we are expressing ourselves mentally the way that we want to, when we are expressing ourselves the way that we want to sexually. Now, Cederstrom, he does this long progression from some fringe... Freudian psychotherapist of the 20s through the 60s hippie movement, and he arrives at this modern moment of hyper-individualism and radical autonomy by which we define happiness. The more individual autonomy I can have, the more self-expression I can express, the greater my joy will be. And he calls this a fantasy. The, The fantasy says that We can only be free and we can only be happy when we have relieved ourselves from any sort of outside authority, any sort of restrictions or constraints that any sort of influence or authority outside of us, happiness will only come when we are ignoring those, denying those, rebelling against those, getting rid of those. And so happiness in the happiness fantasy is casting off the restrictive opinions of society, of religion, of parents, casting off the opinions and the restraints and the constraints of any perceived opponent to our most self-defined, genuine, and actualized version of self. Now, here's the fantasy piece. This isn't for everybody, but for some. After having fully embraced and expressed our most authentic self emotionally and relationally and sexually having gone through years of therapy, for some of us having studied our disc profiles, our strength finders, our Myers-Briggs, our Enneagram types, to know who we truly are. For some of us having practiced all the biohacking and human optimization techniques, for some of us having practiced self-care to the point of self-indulgence, we find ourselves in a moment waking up saying, why am I still not happy? Why does joy elude me? The fatal flaw theologically, biblically, from the perspective of Jesus, in the happiness fantasy, is self. It's us, friends. Somebody this morning, I think it was Haley, was praying through the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel is this. From the perspective of the Bible, our most actualized, authentic expression of self is broken and deceived. That's offensive. That's hard to hear. What the Bible says about our most authentic self is that we actually need a Savior and we need a community of the Holy Spirit being led by that Spirit to save us from ourselves. We need, the Bible says, an absolute authority to lovingly restrain and constrain our self destructive beliefs and behaviors. That's hard to hear. We need a King, the Bible says to govern and rule our hearts. And I think, most beautifully, we need a creator to tell us who he's made us to be. We need a potter to shape us as clay, as the Hebrew sages and prophets said throughout our history. And so here we find ourselves this morning again in the farewell discourses of John, John 14 through 17. Jesus was giving his final instructions, his final warnings to a community of people who were slowly learning to trust him as that kind of savior, as that kind of absolute authority. His disciples were bit by bit beginning to yield to him and surrender to him as the king that they needed. What Jesus was doing for them and for us is always incrementally turning us from our personal happiness fantasies. And the more that they and we learned about him and from him, the greater they and our desire grows for him to actually shape us and define us and rule us and become, at the end of time, our deepest joy for eternity. Renowned researcher Brene Brown, I'm sure you're familiar with her, she says this, joy is the most vulnerable of all human emotions. And the reason she says that is because, statistically speaking, the way that we define joy in the happiness fantasies of Western culture, it makes joy so fickle, so fragile. It's as if joy is always just on the verge of breaking. It just seems to be constantly fleeting and eluding us. And my dear friend, this morning what Jesus offers you and me and all of humanity throughout all of creation, throughout all of history, Jesus offers us so much more than this fragile, fleeting happiness fantasy. He is offering us an unchanging, unwavering, immovable, stable, steadfast joy that becomes the very source and essence of your being. This is what Jesus Offers us in the gospel. This is the good news after the offensive news of what salvation actually means for you and I as his followers. So, all we want to do from John chapter 16 this morning is we want to live out by faith and in obedience what Jesus meant when he said in verse 22 You will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. From our text, three points of meditation this morning for practicing Christian joy in this world. Number one, wait in the confusion, watch for clarity. For you note takers, this will come back up as we go through the teaching. Wait in the confusion, watch for clarity. Number two, to maintain joy, to find joy, to live joy in this world, we have to let God work through our sufferings, through our hardship, to bring joy in what the world and Satan and our flesh intended for pain. And then number three, it is a choice to rejoice. Such a stupid cliche. It is a choice to rejoice, though. We have to resolve to stay in the true source of joy as Christians. Let's start with number one. Wait in the confusion. Watch for clarity as a practice and a meditation on Christian joy in this world. Jesus, throughout the gospel, had become increasingly clear with his words that he was going to be departing, that he was going to be leaving, that he was going to be crucified. And three days later, he would raise from the dead and he would ascend into the Father where he would establish a metaphysical, invisible, spiritual rule until his ultimate return. He was becoming more and more clear about that. And his disciples were like, what? I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean? All of his talk about going to the Father made no sense to them. It was utterly confusing. Verses 16 to 17. Some of his disciples said to one another, as Jesus is getting more clear with them and with his words, what does he mean by saying, In a little while you're gonna see me no more? And then after a little while you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by this a little while? Like we don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> they were confused. And here's why. The disciples had no category for a dying Messiah. They read Psalm 2. They read the book of Daniel. And they saw a warrior Messiah, a warrior king coming who would conquer the enemy and deliver them from under the boot of Roman oppression, giving them back their ancestral Jewish lands. The thought... That God actually intended to multiply his kingdom, not through warfare, but through Jews and Gentiles. Through weak, regular humans who would work on the margins of society as unseen mustard seeds, Jesus said, being planted in the ground, small, insignificant. The thought that God would multiply his work and conquer the world and Satan through this leaven in the loaf, unseen work of People on the margins. Not only was that foreign to them, it was ridiculous. They just didn't have a category for it. And so too with us as disciples of Jesus. Just as they were confused and didn't have categories for what Jesus was saying, they were robbed of joy in the midst of that. We too, as we follow Jesus, will have these things that rob us of our joy. Let me give you a list of them. Number one, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations destroy joy. And I will say that 95% of the cynicism and the departure that we see in the modern Western church is people who had expectations of Jesus, and then Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and so they're walking out the door by droves because Jesus isn't their magic genie in the bottle. And I think we need to repent. Good desires... Many of us have good desires, desires that drive us, desires that line up with the will of God in the Bible, and those desires seem to go unfulfilled. That is terribly confusing. Here's the verse. Here's what it says. That's what I want to do. It doesn't happen. What is happening? We don't have a category for that. And I would say, finally, a third robber of joy in our confusion is our inability to control outcomes, even though we're so persuaded we can bend the universe to our will. It's terribly confusing when you believe you can bend the universe to your will and then your neighbor doesn't even bend to your will. (laughs) Your own soul and its civil war with the flesh doesn't bend to your will. That is confusing for us. And so like the disciples, when we first begin to follow Jesus, we all are coming to him with this host of dreams and desires and expectations that we see him fulfilling. We give him our roadmap, our blueprint. We pray in Jesus' name. And then Jesus goes about his work in an utterly jarring and disorienting way in the reality of our lives. It does not unfold the way that we deemed it would unfold. And it is terribly confusing. The lion's share, my dear friends... Young Christians and seasoned saints. The lion's share of our Christian life is spent learning to trust Jesus. Learning to trust him even when, and especially when, it does not make sense. That is the kernel, that is the core of Christian trust. When it does not make sense, when it seems impossible, when it's so disorienting, this is where we are learning to trust him as the true king, true authority, true ruler. And this process does not come quickly nor easily. What Jesus is doing in you and I as a community of his followers is he is creating a whole new vision. He is giving to us a whole new set of expectations. And those expectations and visions and dreams and desires, they are sourced in an eternal kingdom of God in union with the Holy Spirit. Not in this world and in our flesh. We can no longer adopt the joys and the happiness fantasies of the world and stamp Jesus' name on them and hope for the best. We have to allow him to radically reorient, radically, as the saints would say, recreate something new in us, something fresh. Jesus would say, you have to be born again. Now, these seasons of disorientation, confusion, frustration, they have gone by many names Some authors call this hitting the wall, and maybe you're there this morning. Burnout is a common one. In churchy language, I'm in a wilderness season. I'm in a desert season. I'm very dry. The mystics of old, dark nights of the senses, dark nights of the soul, dark nights of the spirit. These guys, these mystics, they're in the air right now. I really encourage you to actually read them, not just listen to the quotes from pastors like me. They're incredible. I have come to call, in my own 20-year journey with Jesus, these confusing, disorienting desert times, the void. <laughs> the void. I mean, just like the void. Because, I would say this, for some of us, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm your quintessential textbook Enneagram 8, I feel everything like a volcano under a paper napkin. It's just like, everything for me is just feeling huge. So for some of us, when these disorienting times comes, it feels like everything is unraveling completely. And in my world, it's because it is. God is unraveling Dan's blueprint for the universe. He's throwing it in the trash. And it feels like it's being thrown into an abyss of darkness, the void where everything will be lost. And in some senses, for me, it is. Friends, if you're at the wall this morning, I want to, as a fellow sojourner, maybe a little bit ahead of you, invite you to quit trying to jump over it. You cannot jump over it. St. John would tell us that the dark nights of the senses, the soul, and the spirit, there is no magic flashlight, three steps to getting through this faster. (laughs) These are sacred times for the Christian following Jesus. Because in these sacred times of invitation, our Father is inviting us to allow him to radically transform and reorder our desires to align with him from the inside out, make us new and different, a whole different blueprint that's so surprising. What the Father's doing is he is patiently and carefully taking us off the throne of our self-made utopias, our self-made kingdoms. And he is, though it is so confusing, he is lovingly freeing us from the false happiness fantasies that have deceived us and driven us. And this, friends, is hard. It's hard. The authors of the Bible they don't ignore this. Proverbs 13:12 literally says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life." And so, how to experience joy in times like this where it feels like your heart has grown sick and hopeless because desires drive you that go unfulfilled unmet expectations are confusing you how do we get clarity how do we have joy in that well we recognize that clarity will come if we will wait and surrender stop trying to jump over the wall stop trying to speed up the process of the dark night verse 25 Jesus said to them verse 16 or chapter 16 verse 25 I have said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the father so in their confusion, even within just a few paragraphs, Jesus does eventually provide clarity for them. And their response, verses 29 to 30 of John 16. Then, dis- then the disciples said to Jesus, okay, all right, now we get it. Now you're speaking clearly. Now you're not speaking with all these figures of speech. Now we can see and know that you know all things and that you don't need anybody to question you. This makes us believe that you came from God. This is in microcosm what we experience in the whole of the Christian life. Confusion, disorientation, we wait, we watch, knowing that God will bring clarity. We stop questioning and challenging him, handing him our blueprint, and eventually things get a little bit more clear and we can look back over the landscape of our life and we can say, oh, now I see that you knew what you were doing. Oh, now I believe that I can trust you. And the journey of trusting in Jesus... Inch by inch is learning to trust him in increasingly confusing dynamics while waiting for clarity to come. And by the time you're on your deathbed, when whatever is taking you to be with him, you'll be able to say, this confusing moment of ultimate loss, I know I will see clearly when I see him face to face. That's what he's doing in you. Jesus, my friend, he will make things clear. And it will take time. And there are things that I have finally surrendered to my father. And it has been 20 years of me wrestling where I finally realized there are things that will only come clear, I believe, in the resurrection. The big philosophical questions that I wrestle with that make me kind of crazy in my brain. I have finally surrendered to the mystery that one day I will be able to look back over the landscape of generations and eternity and say, this suffering, that pain, I see. Because I can see through the eyes of my father now. And I will wait, because my Father will always, always prove himself to be faithful and good and wise, because he is faithful and wise and good. God, my friends, is not a God of confusion, and God is not cruel. God is not just making your heart sick for the fun of it, pulling the puppet strings. Our Father is methodical and detailed and specific and he is intentional in moving each of our souls closer and closer to the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, not on earth to heaven. Confusion, dry seasons, doubts. If you're there in your chair deconstructing right now, unmet expectations, hardships, unfulfilled desires. These, friends, in the body of Jesus, in the community of Jesus, are not something to flee. These are sacred invitations. God is inviting us to be transformed, to fill our hope-sick hearts with a deeper joy that, as the Proverbs say, we might become a tree of life. That is a Genesis reference, a literal tree of life to a world that is chasing happiness fantasies right to their graves. Three practices here on this first point, three practices for us to engage in while waiting and watching for clarity. Number one, if you've been part of Neighbors for more than three weeks, you've heard this word before, be still. Be still. Slow down. Stop distracting. Quit running from it. Be still. Literally, physically learn to enter the silence, the agony, the anxiety, the depression. Be still in it and wait on God until clarity comes. One of my favorite paraphrases of Lamentations is Eugene Peterson's In the Message. And I have gone back to this verse many times over these 20 years. Let me just read it to you, it will be on the screens for you. God proves to be good to the man who passionately waits, to the woman who diligently seeks. It is a good thing to quietly hope. Quietly hope for help from God. It's a good thing when you're young to stick it out through the hard times. When life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself, enter the silence, bow in prayer, don't ask questions, wait for hope to appear. That's it. Number two. Second practice, be honest. Be honest. (laughs) In the stillness in prayer, we can get what I've come to call ruthlessly honest about our expectations and desires. Ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Letting the layers of the onion be peeled away down to, oh, this is why I desire this. It's because I don't believe you love me and I need love from whatever else I'm seeking love from. Ruthlessly honest. And in those moments of honesty, I have become ruthlessly honest about how aware I am of all the good things that God has done, is doing, and how fulfilled much of my life actually is. It is a very sweet and beautiful thing to be in silence and to suddenly realize, and this, and this, and this, and this, just starting with air in my lungs and to be overwhelmed with the sense of gratitude that he created me. Honest. And then third, number three, in our times of waiting and watching, be with community. Be with community. Come out of the stillness and the silence with honesty of heart and then process this with your community, one unto another. We are literally praying here that neighbors, our church... We're praying that this would be a place where on any given night in any one of our given communities, you'll have that brand new believer that just got baptized. They're like four weeks old in the Lord, and you say Jesus, and they burst into tears, and and all they can do is just talk about Jesus everywhere they go, and they're just smiling, and you can see they're aflame with the glory of God. Those brand new believers, we want brand new believers sitting in our communities Lighting up flame around us as we older, more seasoned saints say, I remember that joy. That joy is my joy. I embrace that joy. I love that joy. I revel in that joy. Sitting right next to these baby believers, these overwhelmingly joy-filled believers. We want them sitting right next to that dry soul spitting dust who is in the midst of doubt and confusion and deconstruction, just really wrestling and crying out for some sort of sense of God's presence. Again, we want those two sitting next to each other, sitting right next to old weathered saints who have been to the mountaintops and they've traversed the valleys, just offering a calm, non-anxious presence. Hey, little baby, that joy you've got going on, smile bigger because it only gets better. Hey, suffering servant, I've been there too. Smile bigger, it will get better. Don't you see that it's within community that we can honestly confess, deal with, deconstruct, reconstruct, and absorb one another's reality in relationship with Jesus. That's how we support one another and live for one another. Stillness, honesty community until clarity comes. Number two, second point from this morning, second point of meditation. Let God work to bring joy that the world, and especially Satan, and the flesh intended for pain. We have to let God work. You know, in this past month, we've welcomed a couple babies into our community. We've got official baby section, a number of babies back there, actually. And we just want to keep adding to that. When I was in Seattle, I actually started praying for our church. When my wife and I arrived in Seattle at our little replant, Our kids were all about this tall, bink, bink, bink. And there was no kids. It was all empty nesters, like 25 or 30 of them. And I started praying one Mother's Day, Lord, we pray for piles of babies, piles and piles of babies. And when we left Seattle, it was literally the babies were just piled up on the walls. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. It was just babies everywhere. We want to be praying that God would continue through the singles and through married couples to form a family and to also multiply. Babies are a huge blessing. And here's something that I've noticed about babies all through my life. I have seen and talked with so many brand new mamas. And there's this uncanny thing about moms that have just had a baby, even after a week. They're aglow with joy. And their smile is so huge as they're showing off their little baby. And yes, they have bags under their eyes because they haven't slept for a week. But I have never, I have yet to meet a mom whose first words to me are, Do you know what that little thing did to me? It was so awful. <laughs> never, not even once. It's not even in their minds. Never once have I talked with a mother who's showing me their new baby and they say, Do you know how bad this hurt right here? <laughs> it's never happened. They're just brimming with joy. Look at my baby. Look, the pain has been forgotten. And so what you and I have to embrace in the confusion, in the disorientation, is that even our greatest hardships, and I recognize that there are hardships that are so hellish in this world, but even in the hand and under the hand of our protective father, our greatest hardships, those are but birth pangs towards greater joy as God reshapes our values and causes us to hope in what really matters and to look forward to what really matters. And he makes us more fully his. And so in this way, when the announcement that a woman's water has broken and everyone knows that pain is coming for that woman, everybody still just rejoices with exceeding joy because we know that that labor is going to lead to life. Dear friends, we have been sold a bill of goods. We have been sold a bill of goods by the happiness fantasies of our days. We are taught that joy is the absence of hardship and struggle, and it is malarkey. That is a lie. Every great saint knows that a life devoid of struggle, pain, hardship, trouble, forms actually thin character and fragile foundation upon which a life cannot be built. Have you guys ever noticed that the people that usually have and have worked through and waited and watched for clarity, the people who have the most tremendous, horrendous backgrounds wherein you think they should be the most embittered, angry people? They're just tsunamis of joy. Have you met these people? You don't want to embarrass her. My wife is one of these people. It's why I married her, this incredible, lavish tsunami of joy. And when you hear her story, you're like, whoa. There's something about waiting, watching, trusting, letting God birth something bigger than ourselves outside of our blueprint through the pain and struggle and hardships of life. Now, it's so important. We don't rejoice in the pain. We're not masochists. That's just a big word that means we love pain for the sake of pain. That's strange. And there are so many Christian communities that actually pride themselves on embracing pain as if it's a good thing. That's just weird. That just doesn't make any sense. That totally denies human psychology, spirituality. That denies the theology of the Bible. We don't embrace and rejoice in the pain. We look forward to what this pain is producing and how it's shaping us. We do always fight to believe that uncertainty will eventually birth certainty. Fear will give way to courage. Overwhelm will become peace that surpasses understanding. Now, seven times in these four verses from our text, seven times in four verses, Jesus says, a little while, a little while, a little while, a little while. Nowhere else in the entire discourse is such an emphasis laid out. A little while. It's not cliche. This is biblical truth. Our pain is temporary. It's temporary. And God is not the cause. God is working through the pain and the brokenness of a sin-filled world to bring about humans' highest flourishing. And so our joy is in the full expectation of, that in the end of all things, this brief 80 years, the psalmist tells us if he gives us strength, in this brief 80 years, these troubles are going to not even compare to the smiles we will have on our faces in resurrection and eternity. Do you realize this is the force behind some of what I used to think were the most ludicrous statements in the Bible. When I first started reading the Bible, I was like, what is this? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles, a man shipwrecked, abandoned, beaten down, bruised, imprisoned, he says, my light and momentary afflictions, my troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I cannot wait to meet Paul. We glory, he would say to the Romans in verses 3-5 through 5 of Romans 5, we glory in our sufferings. Because we know, there's that knowing, waiting, watching, that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. James, the brother of Jesus, maybe the most ludicrous out of all of them, actually believed this stuff. Therefore, he could write in verses 2 through 4 of James 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face troubles and trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. A good way to think about Christian maturity is, let him make you fully you and fully his. Fully you, fully surrender to him. And then finally, number three, as we wrap this up this morning, friends, we have to resolve to stay in the true source of joy. This is a decision that we have to make moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day, month by month, year by year until we see him. It does not come easy. You guys, most of you guys know that I drank the CrossFit Kool-Aid a long time ago, And um, I love it. I think it's a great fitness protocol, whatever. This isn't a pitch for CrossFit, but (laughs) you have to choose every day. You have to to choose. I had a coach tell me one time, the hardest five fitness, the hardest five minutes of fitness and nutrition is the five minutes before you decide to go to the gym. But you have to decide. you got to do it. You have to make that choice. The real battle for us, friends is knowing that we are deciding to root our joy in where joy can only come from. And Jesus is our perfect example and guide on this. We're told by all the prophets that Jesus would be and was a man acquainted with grief. Jesus had none of the things that our happiness fantasies say are sources of joy. He was an impoverished stonemason from a backwater community who lived under the oppression of the most powerful military empire of his day. He was scorned by friends. He was scorned by his family for his beliefs and his behavior. Jesus was maligned from the beginning and utterly misunderstood. His closest friends didn't get it, as we're seeing in our text today. He was low on the social class hierarchy and spent his entire life on the margins of power. All the things that our happiness fantasies say, we have to have our Savior and King, had none of these things. And yet Luke gives us the secret sauce to Jesus' joy. It's this tiny little statement, the huge gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it'll be up on the screens for you. Right at the height of his ministry, Luke says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus found his highest joy, not in finding power, not in relationships, not in it going according to his blueprint. Jesus' joy was he recognized and believed and knew that he was one with his Father, One with the God that had created all things. And all he wanted to do was honor the Father and do what the Father commanded him to do in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it gave him joy. And he would say to you and I in the farewell discourses, I want my joy in union with the Father to be your joy. Jesus' joy was sourced in this surrendered and obedient trust. And what we need to realize this morning is that, yes, the texts say that God is love, but God is also joy. (laughs) God is joy. And it is our vital union, John chapter 15, our vital union with Him, where we discover our joy can never be taken. This is why the martyrs of old would actually kiss the stake and, with a smile on their face, die for Him, knowing that they were going to be with Him. It's a difficult decision. It's an intentional, disciplined decision. But I would say that at the heart of the gospel is the pathway to joy, and this is why. Jesus came as an example of what human joy is sourced in, namely union with God. When we look at Jesus, we see this is what it means to be fully human, fully unified with God, fully surrendered to whatever is in God's will in the moment, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. Jesus came also to make a way for us, To be in union with God through his death in our place. Jesus also came as our victor, Christus victor. He came to be the champion who would lead us to joy. Assuring us that joy would follow even our death in resurrection from the dead. And wherein afterwards we would dwell eternally with our God as one and with each other as one. So this is our joy. All God is doing in your life right now, every point of confusion, every labor of waiting in the agony, in the uncertainty, all of it is designed to get you to a place where you in ever deeper increments, ever broader strokes say to the Father, I surrender to you and I rejoice in obedience to you. It doesn't make sense. I don't see the way forward. I go still and I wait. Thank you that I have air in my lungs. There's a purpose in this air in my lungs. I'm not an accident. You're not punishing me. You punished Jesus. You're not condemning me. You condemned Jesus. I'm not guilty. You put all of my guilt on Jesus. You're not separating me from you. You separated your son so that I would be forever vitally unified to you. These are the core truths of the gospel, and they are our only hope and our only source of joy, and they are our true source of joy. They are the true source of reality. And we stand as cities on a hill, light in the darkness to a world chasing happiness fantasies to their graves. Here's what Edwards said. Jonathan Edwards without question, the most brilliant philosopher and theologian that the United States has ever produced. Edwards, at a season in his life, wrote a series of resolutions, like New Year's resolutions. He wrote a long series of resolutions. They're super hard to read because he was super smart and spoke in weird ways. But the top one was this. One of his top ones was this. Edwards said this, I have resolved to to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness, that's good, that's what we're all doing, I have resolved to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, and then this is what he said. Here was his resolution: with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of, violent warfare against the loss of joy in this world. That's not easy going. That's not three steps in a self-help manual. Christianity is not just really great self-help. It is literally a man saying, I will resolve to war against the world and Satan and the flesh because my Father loves me. And with any effort that I put into this world, I resolve to find my joy in union with him in the life to come and bearing that light in this world. In your travail." and long journey in this moment before we come to communion resolve to fight to know the joy of union with God through Christ in the spirit practice being still more get ruthlessly honest with the layers of the onion of your heart Get ruthlessly honest with the huge, infinite, miraculous blessings of your life right now. And then labor alongside your community, expressing and processing and sharing these things with gentleness and mercy, salting your language with grace. And in your thoughts, you have to believe and know that your current hardship and pain, it has earthly and eternal purpose beyond your imagination. And then as we come to communion, let the love of God be proven in the cross of Jesus. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet chasing our happiness fantasies, Jesus was absorbing all of our selfishness, all of our rebellion, all of our self-made utopia. Jesus was crushed by that, not as a warrior king, but as a servant slave to love. And he enslaved us. He bought us. He endured the ultimate confusion at the cross. Why have you forsaken me, Father? To give us the ultimate clarity, highest joy, resurrection in him, eternal union with God and one another. And we have the promise through the resurrection. And this is where I rest. (laughs) When I ask the huge existential questions and I look at the suffering of this world, I know with all of my heart that the resurrection proves that one day this world will be made right and good and true and beautiful again. Let's pray. Father, as we come to communion this morning, I resolve again in this moment to fight for joy to fight, to live in union with you. My flesh is always tempted to chase the happiness fantasy. I have my list of bullet points that the world and Satan in my flesh has given me, and if I have those bullet points checked off, then I'm happy. And if those bullet points aren't checked off, then I'm I'm just in despair. But here with my family this morning, just a voice in the midst of us, I resolve. May we resolve today to revel in our union with you. Holiness has been made ours. Righteousness has been gifted to us. Rightness. And eternal life. And the only pain that's being allowed in our lives is only to point us towards deeper faith, greater surrender, more letting go, more servant-heartedness. Father, may we, here at the foot of the cross in our time of meditation and remembrance, May communion be a time where we come and we say, you are my authority. You are the king. Rule my heart. Rule my broken desires. Rule my blessed desires. I, in stillness, come to you to surrender that I might be active in this world for you. In silence, I receive your love, your confirmation, your comfort that I might speak the words of the gospel into a broken world with boldness, with joy. How I pray as we come to communion that there would be a joyful repentance in our community, a joy-filled tsunami, a people thick of character, filled with hope, unstoppable and unwavering in their joy. Rejoice. You will see me again, you promised. And no one and no thing can take this joy from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.